Amen. You can go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 22. Uh, we're continuing through Joshua 22. Uh, if you got primed for 10 chapter chunks after last week, I'm sorry, we're slowing it back down a little bit. Um, picking up Joshua chapter 22, going to look at the whole chapter today. Uh, the ongoing theme as we have been walking through Joshua, though, is the God's faithfulness to his promise to the Israelites. That goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. God promised Abraham that one day his offspring would live in the land of Canaan. And Joshua has been the, the, the reality for the people of Israel of God's faithfulness to his promise. Um, we've seen it play out where God has delivered his people through military conquest after military conquest over uh, all of the kings in the land of Canaan. And then last week in, in chapters 12 through 21, we saw it in just the, the logistical faithfulness as far as the people of Israel gaining their inheritance where each tribe was apportioned their place in the land that God had promised to them. Um, and as a whole... I would say if you if you think about the Old Testament and the people of Israel and their relationship to the Lord and and who they ought to be and and often who they are instead of who they ought to be, Joshua really is kind of the high water mark for the people of Israel. Uh, this is the generation of Israel that does believe who God is and what He has said, and they follow His word uh, almost. I say almost to a T because there's a couple of uh, areas where they have fallen short, where there's one individual who who takes things that are forbidden out of Jericho and the whole nation suffers. They, there's a, a place where they, they don't seek the Lord and they create a covenant or a treaty and a covenant that they weren't supposed to do. But more often than not in Joshua, um, in a way that you don't see among the people of Israel throughout the rest of the Old Testament, uh, we see this this people who are sensitive to the Word of God and eager to do what He has told them to do. It's really kind of an encouraging thing because a lot of the times when you drop in and you look at the Israelites, you're like, here they go again. This isn't going to be good, right? Oh boy. But in Joshua, you go, wow, these are people whose hearts are gripped with the reality of who God is and trust His Word at every turn. In chapter 22, we're presented uh, with a, a little bit of a, a, another pivot in a sense um, as the nation faces kind of a, a red alert moment uh, where the, like the, you just imagine uh, sirens are going off, red lights are flashing, something major is, is, uh, is happening in, uh, in and among the people of Israel. Uh, but this time it's not a threat from any other people within the land of Canaan. It's, a, it's an internal threat. Uh, that's uh, threatening the people of Israel's relationship with the Lord or a perceived threat. And as we get ready to read in Joshua chapter 22, I would just wonder, have you ever had a situation where you thought you had all of the information about what somebody was doing and you were prepared to like nip it in the bud, and then you step in and you go, oh, this isn't at all what I thought it was. Have you ever made that accidental misstep? Uh, where you knew the motives that everybody had involved, and like you knew, you knew what the right thing was to do, and then you dropped into the middle of it, and you go, never mind, I don't know the right thing to do. Recalibrating. That's kind of what we're going to see in, in Joshua chapter 22, that, that the people of Israel as a whole, or a good chunk of them, are presented with a situation where they think they know exactly what is going on, 
And then there's kind of a curveball where it's like, oh, you didn't know the full story. So with, having said that, if you whet your interest just enough, we'll go into Joshua chapter 2. We're going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 34, and then we'll walk our way through it and see why it mattered then, why it matters now, and how we are to live in line with God's word this morning. So Joshua chapter 22, starting in verse 1. It says, at that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers." So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it uh, and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us, 
Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And did he not perish, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity? And then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So we're going to break this into about five five quick sections just as as it breaks out in the text. The first one is it provides us some of the context in verses 1 through 6. We find, uh, if you went back to Joshua chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, which it's not on screen for you this morning, but you can just jot it down and go back and look at it. When the people of Israel were getting ready to cross into the land of Canaan to start taking it, as the Lord had promised to them, there were two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, who had already received their inheritance from Moses on the other side of the Jordan River. So if you imagine, the Jordan River kind of creates this boundary along the promised land. There's nine and a half tribes that will live on the west side of the Jordan, and two and a half tribes that already have their possession on the other side of the Jordan. 
But in Joshua chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and then also back in the book of Numbers, Moses had commanded these guys, these two and a half tribes that already had their possession, that they could have it so long as all of their fighting men would go across the Jordan with the rest of Israel and help them have their inheritance too. So in other words, like if you had 11 children, they say, listen, or 12 children, you three can have your inheritance as long as you help the other nine get theirs first, right? So, so even Stevens, everybody's going to have the same thing. And the people of Reuben, Gad, and, and Manasseh in Joshua 1, 12 through 18, they said this is a really good thing, and they committed themselves to it. And so in the first six verses then of Joshua 22, Joshua is commending them for their faithfulness in doing what they had promised to do. You see it play out, he says, in verse 2, you have kept all that Moses has told you to do. You've done everything that I've commanded you to do. You haven't forsaken your brothers, and you've been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. In other words, like in, in every way, you guys have been exceptional. Report card looks great. And, and so much so that in verse 6, he's, it says that he blessed them before sending them away. So it's, it's, it's guys who had, had placed their families on the other side of the Jordan and for possibly seven years continued to wage war in the land of Canaan, waiting anxiously for what they had already received, but yet putting it on delay until all of the people got their portion. And Joshua commends them for their faithfulness in this. But as he sends them, he gives them one command as well. He says, only, verse 5, as you go home, just make sure to be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that God, Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Namely, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart and your soul. That echoes really closely to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 6 where the Lord commanded the people of Israel, summed up the law in a really simple way when saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. If that sounds familiar, it's because when later on, when Jesus is in the midst of his earthly ministry, a teacher of the law comes and says, teacher, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus says, well, how do you read it? And he says, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jesus said, that's exactly it. And the second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? In these two, the entirety of the law is summed up. So, so Joshua is essentially telling these two and a half tribes as they get ready to go home, continue to walk faithfully with the Lord, just as you've done for the last however many years as you have faithfully fought for the inheritance of the rest of the people of Israel. So they go home, and, and he blesses them. That's kind of the context, right? The fighting is over. God is giving rest from all of the warfare, and the people are beginning to enjoy living in the land that he has promised to give them. And then verses 7 through 9 show us that not only uh, that they served faithfully, but that they were blessed abundantly. He says that they had received the land, but then in verse uh, 8, at the end of verse 7, it says that Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them. He also told them to take with them, back to their tents, a whole bunch of stuff, much wealth, very much livestock, 
with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and much clothing. Like, so it, all of the, 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 all from participating in the conquest of the land, they're going home heavy laden with the blessings that God has given his people. So they're, they're not only blessed verbally by Joshua, but they're going home to their families carrying a whole lot of material blessings. Right, like, like this is a like this is a really happy moment. Like you can you can just imagine. Like this is at the end of the movie. They're going home. They fought hard. They're going to be reunited with their families. Everybody is happy. And then the narrative keeps going. There becomes an emergency response in verses ten through twenty because as they're going on their way home, right, they have to cross over the Jordan River to go back to the place where they have. Before they cross over the river, they build an altar on the other tribes or the other part of Israel's side of the river. And at this point in the narrative, in in verse 10, it doesn't tell you any reason whatsoever of why they have built it. Other than that they build an altar of imposing size, not in their land, but in the land on the other side of the river. And then they go home. So then, the guys that are living on this side of the river start going, you seen that massive altar that these guys built? I thought God told us we're only supposed to sacrifice in one place. And there begins to be, think about this, like the, everything that they have just done in the land of Canaan has been hinged on, God is bringing a right judgment against false worship, among the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, all these people who are worshiping anything and everything other than the Lord, God has patiently dealt with them, but after 400 years, brings Israel to bring a right judgment on their false worship. At the same time, throughout the law, he gives the Israelites the warning at every turn, if you start adopting the practices of worship like the people you just drove out, I'm going to drive you out of the land too. Like he, he, even, he uses really strong language. He says that the land is about to vomit out the people who live there. Now, I don't know about you, and I'm not going to get too graphic because everybody's grossed out by vomiting, but nobody has ever vomited and said, that was a really peaceful process. I loved every bit of that. Somewhere in the back of your mind, you're going, how in the world did that just exit my body that fast and that violently? And it comes again, right? It's like, it's horrible. And you just sit there and you cling to the toilet and pray that it finishes. Wrong? God, God uses some language in his word to like that you go, I, I, I know what that is like. Then that is horrible. And he says to his people, if you do this, this is exactly what will happen to you too. You will be pushed out of the land violently, forcefully. If you do not worship me, right? And so what the people, the nine and a half tribes of Israel on the other side of the river, what they see is, we just finished this and now these, are you kidding me? We just finished fighting after seven years and now our own people are doing the same exact thing that got these guys kicked out. And it brings us back to this important thing that we've talked about throughout Joshua is that, 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 that what happens in Joshua, as uncomfortable as it is for us, as God is driving people out of the land and giving it to the people of Israel, 
We've said this before, but I think it's important to revisit this, that, that God does not withhold the same judgment from his people that he dispenses to the other ones. So the people of Israel are always on the same hook of righteous judgment as the people that went before them. Because it is tied to their heart of worship and not to their ethnicity. It's not just because that they are Jewish or Hebrews that they're allowed to be in the land. It's because they have a covenant with the Lord in their worship. And their living in the land and prospering in the land for a long time is tied not to their family name, but to their worship. And so you can imagine the alarm that goes up when they start to go, oh boy. These guys just built a huge altar. They're going to start sacrificing on it, and all that we just fought for is for nothing. And so they send out a group of people. Starting in verse 13, it says that they, they, the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And actually, right before that in verse 12, it says that when the people of Israel heard it, they gathered getting ready to make war on those two and a half tribes. We know what war looks like for them because of all of the ways we've seen it through Joshua so far. Think about this. They finally entered a place of rest, and now they're like, okay. Pick your weapons back up. We're not resting yet. How deflating would that be? And so they send Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And you might read over that and go, okay, they sent some people. That sounds interesting. One of them is related to a priest. That sounds interesting. But what's important to realize is that Phineas has a reputation among the people of Israel. If you go to Numbers chapter 25, in Numbers chapter 25, when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they had begun to worship the god Baal uh, at a place called Peor. And it was through the, the people of Moab that they began to worship this other god. And God sent a plague upon his people where 24,000 were killed. But picking up in Numbers chapter 25, verse 7, we see how the plague was stopped. It says, When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he saw a man of Israel go in with a woman of Midian. When Phinehas saw it, he went... Uh, He rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. So you imagine, if you're sending a delegation of 12 guys, and at the head of them is the notorious idolatry killer. The guy who went and by his zeal for the holiness of the Lord, put an end to the wrong worship taking place among the people of Israel, And he is the one that's heading up this group going to meet these two and a half tribes. 
And if we didn't know anything else about what would happen next, what we would assume is, is that Phineas will go into the, into the situation just throwing spears at people. Right, because that's what it looks like in Numbers twenty-five. Like he he sees what happens, he hears about it, picks up a spear, done. Back in time for dinner. That's almost what you expect him to do in Joshua chapter twenty-two. But instead, when they get there, they address the people of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh and say, "Why have you broken faith with the Lord?" Some strong language because the last time that we saw a breach of faithfulness or a breach of the covenant with the Lord was Achan, who is referenced in verse 20. Didn't Achan do the same thing? And what happened to him? Earlier in the book of Joshua, when Achan sinned, he says that he, he did not perish alone for his iniquity because the people of Israel went back into battle and they were routed. Because of the sin of one person. And so they go and they say, how in the world have you broken faith in the same way? Like, didn't you learn in the other place that they reference in verse 17? Haven't we had enough of this nonsense at Peor when we sinned this way? And we're still trying to to get rid of this and become clean for what we did there. The good news is, is that the people of Israel at this point have learned from their past mistakes. They've learned from the previous generation. We, they've learned from a couple years earlier ago when Achan stole the things he wasn't supposed to take. And they said, well, what are you doing? And then it's incredible because they say, if it's not, verse 19, if it's because your land is unclean, it is better. Like, why don't you come live where we are? Come to the other side of the river. Just come back over the river and live with us. But please don't break faith with the Lord. In other words, they're saying, like, this long-awaited inheritance that they have been waiting for, they say, we would rather share it with you than to watch you go into foolishness on the other side. Or to phrase it another way, it would be, it is better for you to come and live in a place where you don't have land than it is to live in the land that you have, but doing it defiling the Lord the whole time. And you can see that they have, up to this place, they have equated an altar of imposing size is tied to wrong worship. Wrong worship brings God's righteous indignation, and we don't want that. Up to this place, if if we hadn't read the beginning of the chapter earlier, you go, that all seems perfectly reasonable. I hope these guys respond in a good way. But the people of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh provide an explanation in verses 21 through 29. Invoking the name of the Lord on themselves twice, saying, He knows, and let Israel know, verse 22. So much so, they say, if, if we're in rebellion against the Lord, go ahead and strike us down today. More so, if we have sinned against the Lord, let His righteous vengeance fall on us right now. They probably didn't say that lightly. Like, if they didn't know if they were in the right or not, they probably shouldn't say that. Right? Like, if it's 50-50 that you could be wrong, you probably don't want to say, hey, if I'm wrong, let the Lord strike me down. Probably don't want to say that anyway. But I say, this is why we built an altar. 
First of all, they say, if we built the altar, first of all, to turn away from the Lord or to offer unsanctioned offerings, let the Lord judge us. And again, that's tied to, like, we're not protected just because we're two and a half tribes of the Lord's people. We understand right worship is connected with God's blessing. It says, but we didn't build it for those two purposes. We built it as a reminder for you. Can you imagine that? Yeah, guys, you, you misread the room. This, that big altar of imposing size, we actually built it because we don't trust you. We think you, you, might, you might be likely to forget that we're related to each other and that we both worship the Lord. We're concerned that down the road your children will forget or you won't tell your children who our children are. And our children might not be allowed to come back over the river and worship the Lord rightly. So we thought it would be wise to, to put something visible and tangible there for you, for you to be reminded to teach your children that just because we live on the other side of the river, it doesn't mean that we're not also followers of the Lord. And notice that there are three concerns that your children will say, what do you have to do with the Lord? There's a river between us and you don't have any portion in us. And because of that, we might be forced out of our right worship, which would then cause us to do the thing you're worried about right now, which is to build altars on the other side of the river, offer our own sacrifices that are disconnected from where we ought to be. Therefore, verse 28 says, if this should be the case, we thought... Let's go ahead and build a copy of the altar of the Lord, not for offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us, reminding you we worship the Lord. In verses 30 through 34, what they say strikes a chord with Phineas and the other delegation. It says, when they heard it, in verse 30, it was good in their eyes. So much so they say, we know that the Lord is in our midst because you are rightly concerned with right worship, that you haven't committed a breach of faith with him. And in fact, by not committing a breach of faith with him, you've delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. And then they go back and they report it to the rest of the people of Israel, and they find it good in their sight as well. And you can almost imagine like the, 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 the DEFCON level goes from really high to zero. Pressure valve is released. But then you go, okay, that all sounds very good and very reasonable. What does that have to do with you and me? Nobody's building an altar in my backyard. Nobody is, is counterfeiting or showing things that, I, that I'd, I'm not aware of. So what do I do with this? A couple of, of things that I would, I would take notice on. First of which is that you and I probably have a similar tendency to the people of Israel. That it's really, it comes almost natural to us to assume that we have all of the information and we know the motives of everybody we deal with. 
How easy was it for the people of Israel to see the altar and immediately say, that's for worship, that's what these guys are doing? Thankfully, what we see in this process, though, is even though they heard about it and they prepared for war, they approached it with wisdom and said, why don't we go hear from them? First of all, it came with an accusation. You guys have done this. What in the world are you thinking? And they allowed space for it to come back and say, that's not at all what we're doing. What we're doing is completely unrelated to what you thought we were doing. Second thing that I think is interesting is that, that as, as believers in Jesus, we are often on high alert against things that threaten right worship of the Lord. And yet, oftentimes, when our focus has rightly been placed on ideologies and worship that are counter to who Jesus is, we take that same level of zeal and, and uh, excitement towards other believers in Jesus who have a right faith in Jesus but might read a second or third degree issue differently than you and I. In other words, we can get so excited about um, contending for faith in Jesus in the public square that then when there's a relax moment, we're still looking for somebody to fight. We're still looking for somebody to argue with over whether Jesus will come at the beginning of the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation. They're still fighting with people whether or not it's right to sing hymns, or whether it's right to sing worship music, or whether it's, it's right to have pews, or whether it's right to have chairs. And, we can, and we, can, we can just stack up allegations in our brains because we are, we've been engaged in a fight contending for faith in Jesus. And we might equate these things that maybe are important by conviction but are not salvation issues to other people involved. So where I want to take us in, in Galatians chapter 6 is just, a, I think, a, a, helpful, a helpful place for us to think about this because it is good, hear me on this, it is good and it is right for us. If there is a question about what another believer in Christ is doing or practicing, it is good and right for us to go and ask a question and to say, this is what this appears to be, why are you doing that? It is also equally good and right to allow space to get a response back and then weigh that response against God's word. So in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, Paul encourages the church, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Notice what he says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you who know Jesus, should restore him with an eye for restoration. Notice how this, this conversation happened in Joshua chapter 22. It was not, you breakers of faith with Israel, weapons engaged. It was, if something in your land is causing you to do this, come live with us. Restore your relationship and your worship to the Lord. Don't go down like warning and cautioning and urging, but inviting them back into 
a right and restored relationship. In the same way, if I see somebody who is engaged in any transgression, so I, like, attention or antenna goes up, like, that seems off. That doesn't seem to square with Scripture. My initial goal is not, that's not in line with Scripture. You're cut off from the body of Jesus. My initial thought is, that's at odds with Scripture. I want to see you walking in a right relationship with Jesus, come into a right relationship and a right reading of His Word. And notice that it comes that you should restore in a spirit of gentleness. Restoring gently is not, I would say, probably one of the highest valued qualities in American Christianity today. We like to keep score and say, this guy scored great theological points. He's the winner. This guy eviscerated the argument of this other guy. He's the winner. I'm concerned that we might be adopting something that is running rampant in our world, which is not a spirit of gentleness, but a tenacity that is vicious. And if we are not careful, that will color all of our interactions with somebody who might be caught in transgression or caught in sin or somebody who just has a different opinion than us. Uh, you, just, you just watch over the next year as we get ready to elect a president and they dialogue with one another. To what extent will gentleness be scored as a virtue of those we esteem for a place of public office? If you think about the videos that we pass to one another of those in, in the Senate or the House that, 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 that contend well for their beliefs, how often do we say they were convictional and they were gentle and humble? Or how often do we say they just made their point and they got him? Yes! I can't wait to do the same thing. But for those of us that are in Christ, that's the, the spirit of the age is not the spirit that you and I are to walk in. The new life that we live in Jesus is not the life that is lived by everybody in and around us. And if we're not careful, we can have a very subtle shifting to where we try to bring the practice of the age into our contending for the faith, and yet we bypass the heart in which we are to do it. He says, if anybody's caught in any transgression, you are a spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. At the same time, humility says, keep a watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Recognize that you are not as strong as you think you are. Addressing with humility, addressing with an eye to recognize you have the same capacity for sin as the person you are trying to restore. You're not immune to the things that they are doing. Our pride would say, I have this figured out and there's nothing that could touch me in this. And Paul says, watch yourself, lest you to be tempted. And there's this call to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Jesus, to come alongside of brothers and sisters in the faith 
helping bear their burdens. And, and in this case, bearing one another's burdens is caught, is attached to verse 1, walking alongside of them when they are caught in any transgression. At the same time, verse 4 says, but let each one test his own work. And, and also verse 3 again, humility, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Dependently clinging to Jesus in the process. And let each one test his own work. So his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. For, verse 5, each will have to bear his own load. You and I will stand before a holy God and give an account for our life. Irregardless of whether or not somebody else has come alongside us to help us and to correct us and to encourage us, we will give an account for that. But I dare say we will also give an account for whether or not we came alongside of others and tried to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. How easy is it to read wrong motives and how easy is it to make it all about me? Right? And you notice in both Galatians chapter 6 and Joshua chapter 22, the very first level of concern is with concern for the Lord and those who are involved. Not over just a matter of preference, not over just how it affects me, but with concern first for the right worship of the Lord, and then second, that person's relationship with Him, which hopefully produces humility and an eye for restoration. And if you have any, if you go, I just don't even know what that would look like. I don't know what it would look like to pursue somebody who is running after something they ought not to run after. That's why I'm really glad that Jesus took on flesh and lived among us. It gives us a really good practical example of what it looks like to pursue people with the gospel. But our hope is not in our ability to do this. It is our hope that Jesus has the ability to transform, restore, make things new in a way that you and I cannot. In the same way that Jesus took us when we were far off and brought us near through the blood of his cross. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he took us from death to life for those who have put their faith in him. So if we look at a situation and we have already assumed there's no way that God could fix this, was it possible for God to bring dead people back to life? Is it possible for God to bring spiritually far people to be spiritually near people? Is it possible for God to take spiritually uh, dead people to make them spiritually alive people? Is it possible for God to take people from spiritual darkness and transfer them into the, His kingdom of magnificent light? If we say yes to all of those things, then what? Why? Why would our default position be hopelessness when we look at any situation? If we really believe what Jesus has done on the cross has radically transformed who we are, can he not also radically transform the things that we see and the things that so deeply trouble us? And I pray that our manner of living with one another has the same motive. Even in Joshua 22, when they began with the wrong motive, the motive was... They assumed the wrong motive in the two and a half tribes. But their motivation was, we want you to be right with the Lord. 
May that be the marker by which we interact with every person around us. I want you to be right with the Lord, and this is what he has done. And Jesus didn't set up an altar as a reminder of imposing size for us to look at and go, oh, we have a place in the Lord. But in order for us to remember his work on our behalf through his death, burial, and resurrection, he's provided us with two ongoing ordinances that we practice as a church. And those are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And in both of these ordinances, that's a fancy word of saying two observations, two things that we continue to observe until he returns. With baptism, it's a, it's, it's a visual tangible reminder, not just to the person being baptized, but to those in the church body, that God is the one through Jesus who brings people from death to life. And that's pictured through their lowering down into the water, likened to his death, and brought back up out of the water, likened to his resurrection. And then on an ongoing basis, because we're not baptized over and over and over again, but we have also been given the Lord's Supper, which when we gather together and we eat it, What we are proclaiming and reminding one another of and being reminded of ourselves is that our place in a right relationship with the Lord did not come through all of our well-polished, just moral behavior changes that we have done to ourselves. Our right relationship with Jesus has come through his death, burial, and resurrection. Like When he died for us and was raised for us, then he killed the power of sin and death in our lives, and he grows us to new life in him. And as often as we eat and we drink of it, we are reminding each other, this is where our hope lies. Our hope lies in a resurrected Savior who will one day return and gather us to himself. But until that day, this death, burial, and resurrection is what we desperately cling to for our life and our hope We don't cling to our own abilities. We don't cling to the things that we bring to the table for ourselves. We cling to what he has done for us and what he alone could do for us. And as often as we eat and drink of it, we also remind ourselves that every other thing that we might be tempted to worship is inferior and cannot do what his death, burial, and resurrection has done for us. His death alone has conquered sin and death. His resurrection alone has ensured a newness of life. In the words of the disciples, like when Jesus asked them, are you going to leave me too? And what was their response? Where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. As often as we come and we eat and drink together, we are proclaiming to each other, we have no other hope other than Jesus. And we are proclaiming that with joy that we have been brought near through his death, burial, and resurrection.